Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, we started with uh, Martha and David in conversation. Then we moved to two outstanding presentations uh, from Matt and Niall about, you know, what aspects of the network society. But now, in a sense, we have some of the best practice people here you could ever wish to assemble, actually, at a morning conference. Uh, I, I'll introduce them individually, but first to speak is Justine Roberts. Justine is the chief exec, chief exec and founder of Mumsnet. I think, she, from memory, she was 97th in the media top 100 as the most influential in the UK, but I think her influence goes a little more than the UK, and I think 1.3 million hits a month on the site, and definitely has hit a, a brand new social network, so I don't take all everything away from you, Justin, but why don't you come and... Are you going to stay there, aren't you? I'll are you go, where, where would you like Where me? would you feel most comfortable? Um, there. Here, I think, yeah. <laughs> here. Um, well, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's interesting being here at something called Race Online because the history of Mumsnet feels more like a sort of gentle plod online than a race. I mean, we are 11 years old, which seems extraordinary, really, and... In internet years, that sort of makes us geriatric. Um, and when we started, we started at a time where people were still, you know, wondering what the point was of the internet. Uh, a bit like people say now, sometimes people say about Twitter. And they say, oh, I can't, you know, really, um, I can't see the point of Twitter, all that inane chat and Twittering. I certainly don't have time for it. But, but that, and that's what we faced when we started. And in a way, they had a point because, of course, a lot of, a lot of people were still on dial-up. Uh, and I often found myself thinking, what is the point of this, too, when you're waiting for your dial-up signal to come along? Um, and in the early days of Mumsnet, um, to get it going, I mean, Mumsnet is now, we have 27 million hits a month, not 1.3 million hits, 27 million. Um, and in the early days, it was very much a case of uh, it being deathly quiet, though, on those forums which are now buzzing. Um, and it was very often me talking to me with another alias. Um, <laughs> uh, and actually, the time I knew Mumsnet had really caught on was when a friend called me in desperate need. Um, she was pregnant. I'd been pregnant. She had palpitations. She wondered if I had. And I was terribly ruthless and said, look, I'll answer your question, but can you please ask it on my website? And then I'll go on. And I felt a bit guilty, so I rushed on to answer her question, and when I got there, someone else had already answered, and at that point, I thought, oh, oh thank God for that. There is someone else out there. Um, and it caught on, and the reason it caught on, I think, um, and the reason people spread the mum's net word is, uh, can be just summed up in a very simple way. It is useful. Uh, and I think we should never forget that. It's the utility of the internet that, that drives people to it. Um, and it was useful because it offered 24-7 peer-to-peer -peer support and advice on pretty much anything um, you cared to mention. Uh, you know, if you allow a group of smart women to advise each other, then they will come up with some useful advice. I just had a very quick look today at our active conversations, and there were people getting advice on how to apply for housing benefit, um, dealing with uh, their violent teenager, writing um, CV, a new CV, getting tips for writing a CV, and then someone saying... 
am I being unreasonable to allow um, my husband to leave his GQ lying on the coffee table with Rihanna half naked on the front and my seven-year-old flicking through it, which is very topical. Um, so, I mean, anything and anything you can get advice from from this wonderful network of women. It really is, um, dare I say, the big society in action. Um, and going forward, we're really keen to think about how we can get some of the more um, sort of disenfranchised people online, particularly the older generation, and whether we can use our mum's netters to help, you know, adopt a granny and get them online. So we're th busy thinking about that. We're very pleased to be part of the efforts for Race Online. It's a fantastic thing, and even though I have to say for us it feels more like a marathon than a sprint online, we're pleased to be here. Thank you. I think she deserves a round of applause. Thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Jolanta Lasotto, if I got that right? Wow. Uh, who's chief executive of Treehouse, uh, which uh, really looks at how children deal with autism, but children and their families deal with autism. If you don't understand some of the nervous diseases of the late 20th century, it's a J-curve. It's been going along for a 1,000 years and suddenly these things go up like this and they go up alarmingly fast. Now, either it's because we got better detection, okay, so we haven't listed it as tuberculosis or something we knew it was, or actually we're doing something in the atmosphere or with our food or the way we live, and these diseases have come at a hell of a pace, and society is reacting slower than it ought to to this, especially autism. Uh, I'm sure that Jolanta is going to tell us a bit about that. She's a... A charity queen, if I can say that. She's had a stunning career looking after the less, less able in our society. So we're looking forward to hearing you speak. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, and I feel the least technically able to be here today. But I hope that I represent um, the audience that Martha was talking about in her introduction people who are disenfranchised from society, for whom technology can do an awful lot more than the existing systems that have been existing for many decades. Um, Treehouse was founded in 1997 by um, parents who had children with autism. Um, one of them included Nick Hornby. If you've heard about us, you've probably heard about us because Nick Hornby was one of our founders. Um, they decided they wanted to change the world. They wanted to change their own world. Um, they wanted to change the world for their children, but they also wanted to change the world for all children with autism. And they started doing that the traditional way, which was by building a school. They started off in a library, they moved to porter cabins, they did all sorts of things. Then the next stage was to actually provide training and advice for families and, and uh, professionals. And then the next stage was, well, we're still missing something, actually, and we haven't addressed the most fundamental thing for people affected by autism, which is isolation. People with autism end up very isolated. If you don't understand the condition, it's a neurological condition, which um, for, for tech, techies is basically um, a case of your, um, your operating system not working. You don't understand what's going on around in your world. You don't understand communication. And it leaves you very isolated, and it leaves family very, families very isolated. Because the different behaviour that autistic people display means they don't fit in society. The families quite often stay at home. Some of the children that come to our school have not left their home for two or three years, and their families have not left home for two or three years. So you can imagine that they are very, very isolated. And we decided that we wanted to connect them somehow. 
And uh, we were a young upstart at that point, and we met another company that was a young upstart at that point, which was Talk Talk, and they decided to help us to do this. So we set up Talk About Autism, and Talk About Autism is not unique in any way in terms of being a forum for parents and people affected by autism. Um, but I suppose it's unique in some ways. It's facilitated entirely by people affected. So we have champions around the country who moderate it throughout the day and night. And that makes it very different because they're the first people to welcome someone into the forum and they will intervene if they feel that a conversation is, is becoming uh, maybe inappropriate. And so it is very much um, created by people for people. So they, they rule the roost on Talk About Autism. Um, what's different about it as well is we've used it as a way for those people not just to be able to provide information to each other, but be able to influence policy. So before the election, we hosted a discussion with, I suppose as Mumsnet did, with the key politicians, but ours were around education with Ed Balls, with Tim Lawton, with David Laws, and we um, let the families test their policies. And we continue to do things like that because we feel that alone these families have no voice, but together they're a force to be reckoned with. And we want to bring the people who should be accountable to them to them to answer their questions. We've got around 10,000 uh, visits a month at the moment, which is small in comparison to many sites, but because our, our audience is quite niche, it's not about numbers, it's about connecting up people who are very, very disenfranchised. Um, our plans for growth are really around working now with individual groups. So what we're going to be doing is creating a platform for groups of families who at the moment have no online platform so they can create a local forum for each other. So actually moving from a national forum into a locally based forum so we have much more granular conversations taking place about what is happening. And as a big so what factor, interestingly, I did want to put my hand up to Martha Fox and say, is she aware that um, about a week ago the Department of Education uh, put a Q&A up on their website and someone asked, uh, can, you, can we communicate with you via website? And their answer was, no, we don't like websites, which um, I would love someone to go and see someone. Uh, Michael Gove, I think, is probably the right person. Um, because it's very concerning that the department which is educating our youngsters um, makes the statement. I'm sure it was a junior civil servant who wrote it without any authority. But I think it's really important that we sell this work going forwards because for me it's not just about empowering people who are disempowered. It's not just about the fact that it's probably the most cost-effective tool and big society and all of those things that everybody's talking about now. But it is about democracy. And these people have absolutely no voice without platforms like this. Um, and in a, in, a, in, a, in a country that's currently making significant cuts, these are very hidden people. And our answer is that we have to give them a platform locally and nationally to ensure that when the big changes happen, someone has remembered that they exist. Thank you. I think when uh, President Kennedy pressed the button on going to the moon, it was because, in a sense, the Cold War meant, apart from Korea, you hadn't gone to war for 15 or 20 years after the Second World War. And, of course, part of the space race, the two things that came out of it that are of interest to me, one is Teflon. So, in other words, they were using it for technology, to, to actually create new technology. And the other one was, of course, they spent $100 million in NASA to create a biro that would work in a floating atmosphere, whereas the Russians just used a pencil. 
Um, uh, and in a sense, that's what the Olympics is now about. The Olympics is actually the space race of the 21st century. That's why people queue up to do it, especially the tech companies, because they see it as a way of corralling millions of people online and millions of people actually going to Stadia and the Stadia themselves and the television presence and now, of course, the online presence. So one of the luckiest mem mem members in the world currently is actually... Alex Balfour, just checking his name, sorry about that. Alex uh, has got to work out what Stratford Roundabout Tech Centre is going to be. It was mentioned, Alex, this morning, if you weren't here, what, what is going to be the sort of post-212 phase, uh, and will it make a science park or a tech park, as, as has been maybe suggested, but don't let me take all your wind. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, um, I'm glad to say, although I have many responsibilities, one of them is not the post-Olympics uh, infrastructure, although we will be um, obviously party to what happens during the Games. Um, but I, I think I'm, I'm, there's so much to talk around around the Games, and, and uh, as Derek said, it's, uh, um, we often talk about it as the largest uh, peacetime mobilisation and logistics exercise um, outside of war, um, because it, it's that big. And, and I think what I'm going to do is, is I'm probably here more for the repartee than, than the introduction, so I'll share two thoughts with you. What, one is in terms of thinking around uh, Network Nation. The Games uh, is a massive scale event, and um, I think the, the best... Um, it, it's difficult even when you're working for an organising committee for Games to appreciate just how big the enterprise is, um, because some of the numbers don't make a lot of sense. We have 15,000 athletes... 20,000 accredited media, up to 100,000 volunteers. Um, we're bringing on, in our organization, um, we're inducting 50 people every Monday, um, and that's only going to be double that number by 2011. So, so the, the numbers are huge. And, and to give some sort of um, context, which at least resonated for me, uh, when we were lucky enough um, to send a few dozen of us to Beijing to observe the Games, um, it was an important job of work for us to do, um, we, we were all kitted out, as you do, with uh, uniform, so we could be identified and probably so we could behave. Uh, we, we were asked to go down to the local um, post office sorting depot to um, get our uniform, so I sort of toddled down there thinking not much of it, turned up to an enormous warehouse um, and was quite taken aback and spoke to one of my colleagues who runs, um, we're acronym-tastic, runs the, what they call the UDAC, the Uniform Distribution and Accreditation Centre, and I said, so... What does this mean at games time? She said, oh, we do about a million pieces of kit at games time just for, just for uniforms. So the scale is, 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 uh, is, is huge, and clearly that, that um, same scale is played out in the online space. So a big part of our networking of the nation, and, in, and indeed of many nations, the 205 nations that take part in the games, um, is, is simply doing what we do on digital platforms. To date, that's meant um, all the main interactions we've had with the public around Ticketing sign-up, we've got over 2 million people signed up to pre-register for tickets, which we'll launch in March. Volunteering, mascots, our Torch Relay programme, our education programme, which is currently in 66% of the country's schools. All of that's delivered online. And that's not necessarily because we've engineered it that way, that's just the context in which we live, that the majority of stuff we do is online. When we gave out tickets to a um, handover event in the Mall and in front of Buckingham Palace in 2008, when we officially received the, the Olympic flag from Beijing and took over um, our Olympic cycle, um, we distributed all those tickets um, online, offline, by post, by phone. 98.5% of those tickets were shifted online because that's where people are. So um, reflecting what Justine said about utility, 
clearly the internet is, is permeated. You know, we're reaching, we've got majority use of broadband. Um, the internet is, has, has permeated um, every aspect of most of the markets into which the games plays, um, and particularly in the UK. Um, so it, it's, it's hugely important when you just want to get stuff done and when consumers are your target market. Um, equally, though, um, the social aspect of the internet is now becoming incredibly important. You know, the majority of people who have broadband are also users of social media. They're active users of social media. Um, and it's a context that we have to, to play into. Um, for example, um, a challenge we'll have around games time. Now, I often get asked the question, perhaps less so now we're 18 months away from the event, but what are you doing about new technologies or some new brand that someone comes up with that we haven't heard of yet? How are we going to, to scale that? Um, well, one issue is, is that we are a, a massive scale event, so we look to um, platforms where the majority of people are likely to be um, and platforms that are emerging now are unlikely to get 60% take up by 2012 because there's a natural cycle of seven years or so for almost any technology to be adopted, whether it's color television, broadband, whatever it might be. Um, but we also have to respect that the people who are already on those platforms, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are the obvious ones, expect us to be present where they already are. They don't want to come to our website necessarily. They expect us to play to um, the environment they already exist in and uh, some interesting stats that recently came out of um, the, uh, the Vancouver Games um, and the FIFA Football World Cup. Um, in Vancouver, they produced um, uh, their online platforms reached 50% of all Canadians, so that's our aspiration for the UK to at least reach that many people in the UK. Their mobile platforms, which they developed fairly late in the day, became uh, the number one apps in all platforms. They were, well, mainly iPhone is the main platform they released on, um, but 70 to 80% of the use of that app. Um, was um, outside of Canada. So people are doing, are networking, are using things socially, are out and about, they're using things in terms of dual screens. Um, in, in the World Cup in South Africa in, uh, in the summer, um, more data was uploaded from venues than downloaded. So people's expectation now as they go into a venue, probably many people here today, as you travel to work, as, as you um, sit in your office, um, is that you will be able to, as part of your regular um, working day, you'll be uploading and doing things just as much as you're downloading stuff. And people's expectation around the games is that they can use all those platforms in our environments, notwithstanding that for us that's a massive infrastructure issue that we have to address and something that's going to be difficult for us. J just another thought around, um, uh, which is not necessarily Olympics related, but um, uh, something that's, that's certainly sprung to mind recently that about the evolution of the internet as a, as a, as a social phenomenon. Um, because increasingly I think the technology is irrelevant and the social factors um, are, are far more significant that, um, you know, we talk a lot about the internet enabling interaction or enabling people to get access to services or to other people. Increasingly I think there's, a, there's possibly, where that's a, that's a potential carrot, there's also a potential stick in that um, if you think, um, you know, it's very difficult now to think of a business which isn't affected, almost any business that isn't affected by the internet in the sense that say take a local hairdresser that may have no dependence on the internet in order to generate business but that business can be disabled pretty rapidly by reputation management on the internet where where for various reasons clients customers denigrate the business online and that can critically damage that business and actually put it out of business and um, because of the because of the amount of information that is out there about that business which the business isn't party to and therefore the business needs to engage with that and i think that's that's something that, that resonates on a, on a business level, um, on a government level, and potentially on a personal level, that 
even if you choose not to engage online, online is already engaging people around and about you, um, and it's in your best interest to do something about that. Thank you. Last to speak is uh, Ashley Highfield, so he's two in here. Ashley works here at Microsoft. He had a former life at the BBC, which I first met him there. Uh, he's the governor of the BFI. He's a non-exec at William Hill, but he's here because he's the consumer and online champion, managing director and VP. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Um, actually, we were also uh, lucky enough to host uh, Jeremy Hunt, um, correct pronunciation, um, here a couple of weeks ago, launching his um, Broadband Britain infrastructure initiatives. Um, and that's made me really think about the, the two sides of the coin here. One is about, obviously, all of the infrastructure side of it, and the other side is very much about the content and services. The overall landing, the overall benefit of a networked Britain, though, I think still has um, some way to go. And I was, I was chatting with Martha about this, that, that some things, for example, the cost savings into households by getting connected to the Internet, the savings on their household bills, on their insurance and so on, um, still is not something that's really landed as a business benefit, um, where some of the other more obvious um, benefits of a, of a networked nation um, that have been really well expressed here probably are landing quite well. And I think it's one of the roles of companies like Microsoft um, to actually get into some of the, I suppose, to the individual, what's in it for me, some of the commercial benefits of, of uh, getting connected. I think at a, at a company level as well, um, Microsoft and other major companies need to move beyond the kind of corporate social responsibility, the CSR uh, raison d'etre for getting involved, and actually look into what the business benefits are again, of the 100% network nation. Um, PwC figures suggest that by achieving this near 100% network nation, the potential benefits to UK PLC are going to be in excess of 22 billion, and that households, as I've mentioned, can save something like 560 a year. Um, but it's more than that. You know, the IT market's going to create um, nearly something like 2,500 new businesses between now and the end of 2013, and that by then, something like 77% of all jobs are going to require the ability to use some form of computer. So I think that, you know, for me in working uh, with Microsoft on these initiatives, it's really, you know, what more can we do to sell in the overall business case um, and make digital inclusion part of our, our core acquisition strategy, if you like, um, rather than just a, a CSR part of our program. So what are we doing? What's Microsoft doing? Um, on the infrastructure side, uh, we engage a number of initiatives to look at how we can use uh, what's called white space, uh, some of the space in the uh, radio spectrum used for television uh, that can be used for high-speed broadband distribution into uh, local communities, for example. Um, more, maybe more germane to today, um, we've got a couple of big initiatives that we're working on at the moment. The first one is uh, Britain Works, um, where we aim to get uh, 250,000 people in Britain uh, online um, and half a million people more au fait with uh, IT and technology. We've had a, something called the Britain Works Challenge, uh, where we have um, uh, opened up to local authorities to pitch for the best ideas to digitally equip citizens. Um, and Barnsley, Sunderland and Milton Keynes are now rolling out programmes funded uh, by, us, by us. We have a, a digital literacy curriculum, uh, which is free online training resource provided by us and available in UK online centres and libraries. Um, and we have an IT academy uh, of online learning programs for student and instructors. 
Um, so alongside um, that initiative, we have um, a second initiative um, around actually getting people to try uh, the internet, get online for the first time. Um, and this campaign is called the, the Go On uh, campaign. And again, we're working very much uh, closely with Martha Lane Fox on that initiative. Um, people who are involved, any of the accredited organisations involved with um, Race Online 2012, uh, for instance, will get uh, access to the uh, free software and licenses that Microsoft already uh, give to uh, UK registered charities. We've extended that to uh, all uh, organisations accredited working with uh, the Race Online initiative. Um, but in a way, um, again, I think that, that, that those initiatives are part of the picture. The other side of the picture is actually making all of this so much easier to use, making, uh, as I think you rightly said, the technology disappear into the background, and this being about the services. And for us, um, I think actually the, 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 the integration of the internet into everyday household devices, into the phone, into the TV, into the games console, and then making it as easy as possible is probably one of the biggest ways that we can encourage people uh, to get online, almost without knowing it, for the first time. So, um, and, and sorry, this is going to sound a little bit like a plug, um, but if, if you've heard about or, or had a chance to use the Xbox Connect, so the Connect is a device that has no remote control, it's completely hands-free, um, and you can go up to your television and talk to your television um, and call up your program guide and grab a program and watch it and use all hand motion and, and voice commands, and in fact it recognises you and give you the programmes that you watch. Once you get used to that, you start to realise actually this is a new paradigm. This is a paradigm where you are just using natural body movement to fast forward through uh, a film, to pause, to rewind. And for me, that's probably the most interesting area in terms of the nine million who are not online. To break down the barriers, on the one hand, we're promoting the very uh, strong economic reasons for them getting online. On the other, is to actually get the internet uh, onto devices like the TV that they're familiar with and then break down those barriers to usage. No mouse required, you just wave and, and talk at your TV. And so that for that reason, I think that the next two years is going to be a pretty profound uh, change, pretty profound delta to where we are now in terms of, of the adoption possibilities. And my, I suppose my um, call to arms is that what more can we do knowing that this technology is coming down the line to create these new content and services. If, if, if you believe in build it and they will come, you know, if the infrastructure side is getting sorted, what are we doing on the, on the services and software side of it? Um, and my answer is at the moment, a reasonable about, but nowhere near enough. Well, a piece of hot news reaches me that Ian Dale has said he's giving up blogging. I don't know if anyone's picked that up on their Twitter now. Um, when I was a politician, uh, we had a presentation from the Cabinet Office to say that if we could move every citizen from paper to online in the post office, we would save, uh, the, the, the maths were, it was 74p for a piece of paper, so for a pension or for a TV license, whatever you went to your post office to buy, it was under a penny electronically. So, of course, we all embraced it and said, what a great idea. Then when the post office came back to say they were going to close all our sub-post offices and our constituencies, we weren't so enthusiastic. So sometimes you have to get these two motorways in kilter. And here you heard say that there are 10 million people who haven't been online or don't have access in this country. And now 
you can sort of see that already what we've heard this up just now is that if they're not online soon, they'll be so far behind because the pace is going so far. So I wonder if anyone out there would like just to address some of the issues about how we get a network society because Race Online stops in 2012. So say we only get a million of the 10 million, what do we do? So anyone have any views about how we ought to address this issue about network nation out there? Just a small question. Just a small. <laughs> At the front here, we have microphone. Thank you. Just say who you are, please. Thank you. I'm Lucy Huberman. I'm Professor of Digital Media at Warwick. A, a lot of initiatives are going to come to an end with the, fund, with the funding situation as it is, but I think the pervasiveness of this culture now means that in the public sector where lots of these people do communicate, whether it's education or health, it's those services that also need to be reaching out into the communities. And I'm working on a project that does just that in the, in the West Midlands with the NHS, reading out digitally to people um, who can connect in lots of different ways via kiosks or the phone or the internet. And we need to bring that uh, uh, culture of design, which is the culture that marries the service and the content and the people well into the public sector. I, I just hope we have time. Okay, Lucy's on the panel this afternoon. There's uh, one in the middle there's, and there's one here. There's more going up every minute. It's good. Hi, Emma Loisel. I'm an angel investor and work in the technology and the media space. And I'll support that because I think that a lot of the push has to come out of the institution. Well, it has to come where the institutions are, are blocking it at the moment. Healthcare is an area I work in. Um, and and I, the, I think the challenge is, is the innovation. We're expecting them to create the innovation. And one of my questions for Martha would be, how can you facilitate uh, enterprise to get into these organisations and create that facilitation? Because it's just to get, if we use healthcare, for an example, to ask clinicians to design technologies that it network the nation is, is completely you know, a ludicrous idea. It's like asking pilots to design engines. Quite frankly, I'd prefer Boeing to do that. So, uh, so I think it's a, it's a case of, of the government accepting and letting enterprise in, and that will create a network in itself. Okay, there's a lady here and there's a, a man there. Oh, sorry, go May on. I? <coughs> I'm Paul Sloan. I, I write and speak on innovation. And um, there's two ways to get more people online, it seems to me. You can either use a big carrot or a big stick. And uh, if you look at what the Labour government achieved in, how many years was it in office? Twelve. What was the biggest, what was the one thing that had the biggest impact on health that they did? They spent a lot of money on health, but the single action which people reckon will, will be most beneficial was banning smoking in pubs and restaurants. And that was a stick, and that has reduced the number of people that smoke. And perhaps what we should say is, if you're not going to be online, you're going to suffer, and you're going to have to pay more to renew your car insurance or your car tax or anything else. And we should actually, uh, there, there are so many positive benefits, the people that don't take it up, perhaps they need something a little bit more forceful to help them. Okay. Lady here. Pass the microphone. The Olympic baton. Does it work? It does. Um, my name's Kate. I um, volunteer um, in my local community helping people. Kate Norman. Um, and I teach people in my local community how to use the technology. Um, and you're saying in 2012, you know, a lot of these schemes might finish. Um, so a lot of the people who I teach are sort of over 65. So I suppose, in a sense, it's sort of a little bit of a wave where in time, those people won't be the issue. Um, so I suppose it's... <laughs> <to> be... 
I'm just, I'm just being as, as honest as I can be. Um, but the problem for me, because I live in rural Cumbria, is the not spots and the places that aren't yeah. connected. Yeah. Um, so for me, you know, obviously I try and support the people in my local community as much as I can. But the pro my main problem is that the networks aren't there, or the speed of the networks aren't there, and that my county council has just got some funding. Um, but I'm worried that they might try and spend it in the wrong places or not future-proof the solution. So okay. that's my... Can I give you a su suggestion while we're handing the phone over there? If you write to your MPs and, and they get Corral, BT or Virgin, yeah. you will find that one or other of them will, will solve the not spot. They will. That They want to. Okay. <coughs> sir. Hi. Um, if, if I Can pay you just my... introduce yourself, sure, I'm, I'm Mark Needham. Um, if I pay my guest bill online... Centrica sort of shares the saving it makes with me by giving me a couple of quid off the bill. If it's much cheaper for the government to administer benefits online, why doesn't it share the saving with the people who claim those benefits by you know, giving the 74 pence that uh, um, would otherwise have been spent on paper to the claimant? That's a good idea. I hope you can address Ed Vasey tonight when he speaks. <laughs> As a solution, sorry. Um, I, I might um, just answer some of that question because my previous role was I ran and set up um, an online service for people on benefits and grants, uh, which now has about 2 million people on it per month. Um, and the simple answer to that is about £15 billion worth of benefits go unclaimed. Um, and that's maybe something that is not high profile. Um, and, you know, one could argue that maybe not that many people want that money claimed. So making it easy to claim money has never been in the interest of any government, despite, <laughs> despite the huge cost tied up with doing it on paper. And something that we try to do in charity is actually take away all of that paper activity and allow people to actually, on one place, work out their benefits and grants and apply in one place. But it was like unravelling a TARDIS of of old technology ha had not been tackled and we the voters don't help on it because every time the government asks for a technology project to improve that back of house systems we all say no that's terrible put more policemen on the street and that's what's really prevented it over the many decades. Anyone else on the panel just want to react to anything that's been made? I think uh, one thing I'd add is the problem with um, saying <coughs> let's put all government stuff online is have you ever tried to do anything online with a government website? I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, doing PAYE, it's just an impossible task. So I think it, if you were going to do that, you'd also have to get a technology partner to make it simple and easy to use because at the moment, which is what you were saying, I mean, there are different platforms that are very complicated and they're not, they don't make it any easier for the, for the person using it. Yeah, that's the one. Everyone cites. I think the point was made about enterprise, and I think some of the services, again, reflecting again what Ashley was saying about technology, um, while some of the Byzantine systems that sit behind um, the, the government departments that... that run a, um, a certain activity or service, a lot of the actual technical solutions needn't be that hard. The challenge, I think, for the consumer is around the usability of those. So, you know, you'll channel down um, a, a name of a department, which probably changes every six months, certainly changes in every electoral cycle, which has no relevance to the requirement you have. So, 
Um, clearly, many of us know that the DVLA is responsible for driving licenses, but actually driving licenses is what you want or something related to your car. So you want the, the site and the service to reflect the natural language that you choose to find it with Google because you're probably not going through DirectGov to find it. And this is what Marco, I know, has been stirring the pot around. And also you want it to um, be usable in a way that you can quickly and intuitively understand. So you need to drive it from, from, from the user side, from user testing and from, from pure usability rather than from um, some of the top-down diktats that are, that are driving government policy. Okay. Yeah, and you need to end this idea that you get a little piece of paper with your passcode on. And by the time you've opened the envelope, it's expired, so you have to apply for and it. And I think, and I think <laughs> on that same point, actually, thinking about tax returns, I mean, HMRC, to give them some credit, are probably the, one of the few government departments that have developed a, um, a, an API so that a lot of external companies can actually, you, essentially, especially if you file um, tax returns, um, corporate tax returns, you can do it through um, an accountancy um, or, or, well, think, or other organisation well, yeah, without, any, without actually having to work yeah. directly with HMRC's website because they've effectively, effectively they've wholesaled that data. And there's an awful lot of other government services which would benefit from that wholesale. So that actually you effectively outsource your enterprise and your usability and all your customer concerns to another organisation which then manages the transaction simply by interacting on a, on a computer-readable basis with the government department rather than expecting the consumer <coughs> to go direct. Yeah, I think, I think the initiative um, that um, Tim Berners-Lee um, was behind of, of releasing the government data sets is one of the routes to go, such that uh, accredited organisations or, or even just anyone on the net, depending on the sensitivity of the data, can, can access and then create their own services so that you're in fact liberating the data and putting it in the hands of potentially the people who can create the kind of services that customers want rather than actually relying on government directly to always contract. But actually, how sad that one of the first things David Willits did was to stop the Tim Berners-Lee Centre, close that down the 36 million. So we had a chance to be the best in the world in this area. But that's a sigh. Lady in green. <laughs> oh, hello. It's just a quick comment to come you back. just introduce um, My name is Helen Beckett. I um, work for myself. Um, just a quick comment to come back on what that gentleman said. Um, I've when I filed my, my business tax return online, I got sent £75 in the post to say thank you very much for doing that. And I think it's very... Oh, <laughs> I just think it's very easy. Um, I used to be a PR consultant for DirectGov. It's very easy to criticise the government online services and not very many people would acknowledge those kind of, of windfalls and, and, and the fact that you know, the money does sometimes sure. get handed back sure. as an incentive. So. So in China, just as the, the point you're making about incentivizing, China, if you don't see your doctor, you get a cheque. If you do see your doctor, you lose it. So people go, well, hang on, I'm not that ill. So, <laughs> so, so quite interesting. Julia's screaming. <laughs> Longest period of silence I've ever heard from. <laughs> Thank you so very much. I'll tell you a weird thing. Tim Berners-Lee has only got 246 followers on Twitter, which I find a very interesting sign of modernity. We need to follow him immediately. Um, <laughs> it is, it is, yes. Um, Julia Hobsbawm, Editorial Intelligence. One of the reasons why we wanted to put this event on is because what preoccupies me is the offline networks and networking and the impact that digital and social networks and electronic has made and will make. It's not so much that I want you to envisage the terrible day that may come when there's no electricity or that we all have the you know, electronic equivalent of snow, but what will be the impact, do the panel think, for a nation and a society of the values of networking 
that the internet has brought if one leaves aside the actual technicalities of the internet? I mean, I, I think the, um, um, it, 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 there's a lot been written recently around um, uh, social effects of the internet, and I, and I like the phrase that um, Clay Shirky uses. I think he's, he's the Associate Professor of Communications at New York University, and he's had, he's had a bit of press here um, and writes very well on these themes. Um, he wrote a book called Here Comes Everybody, and in that um, said it, it, you know, the technology is no longer interesting. It's about the social effects. And, and, when, and when, although I know it, it's, a, it's an awkward conversation because part of the theme today is about people who are disenfranchised and unable to be online, but it's a standing fact that you know, in this country the majority of people are online, um, and, and, and the, 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 the difficult area um, in terms of in prediction and readiness and, and, and business awareness is actually um, what are the social effects, how are people going to react to using technology? Because by and by, for the, for the people who are online, it's not about what, essentially what they're all doing, uh, as Julia said, is they're, they're basically bringing the, the networks that have existed for thousands of years into a, a digital environment, having those same conversations, but they're slightly differently nuanced. So back to, I'm, I made an example in the hope of provocation around a, a hairdresser still needing to have some awareness of their, their online, if only to manage their reputation, you know, 20 years ago, um, you might have gone and had a bad haircut and complained to your friends and rung your mum or whoever it might be um, and, and said, uh, denigrated your hairdresser um, to little global effect. Now, of course, you do that online um, and you publish to the world and, and then there's a big problem for the hairdresser, not just for you. Um, and a few weeks you've got to wait to redress the problem. Um, so I think um, it's the social impact which is really interesting um, and um, the, the, the extent to which people now use networks and, and, and their, their, their um, everyday relationships and their online relationships start to merge and all the difficulties and issues that start to emerge out of that. If you were asking the difference between where we are now and a totally networked nation, you know, what's the difference in the value or the, what can be done between 75% and 97%? I think that's, that's the profound difference because, of course, once you have universality, then obviously you can put a whole range of government and private services online that you can't at the moment. You can make those huge savings and those huge network effects. I remember when I was working at the BBC, you know, there was a, there was a, a bunker in the countryside uh, for when the nuclear attack happened, um, from from which Radio Four would broadcast to the nation, assuming that everyone <laughs> listened to Radio I Four. Know that you were dead. Um, and, 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 I, and I wonder, what, you know, what. I, I had a key to it. I was going to say. Um, and what you know? What's the equivalent now? And when? What penetration do we need to get to on, on the internet when when you can guarantee that everyone will be able to receive that communication at that point? Some pretty profound changes happen. Okay, lady here has a question, and a man four in has a question. Got you, okay. My name's Caroline Cecil, and um, this morning's been absolutely fascinating, and I've certainly learned a new three-letter abbreviation of which government has many, many, as we all know, API. Stupid question, really stupid question, but is it, you know, in the context of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange being um, in, our, in the uh, environment, um, is there an issue about security here that we should be worrying about? Obviously, the American government wishes it was more careful about security, but is there a problem? Okay. 
Alex? And I think actually one of the things that, that emerges out of an environment where, um, I mean, clearly the, the, the challenge for governments, um, and particularly the US government around WikiLeaks, is that so much information was digitized. And once information is digitized, it's fundamentally insecure and will, will ever be. So the, the, uh, it, it's, it's almost impossible to put a lid on something that's digitized because it, at that point it's very, un, very unlikely ever to be uh, able to be destroyed and at some point it will get out um, into some sort of environment. And I think that the challenge that, that reflects on is that you, know, you have to, well, you, you, you could really say that in terms of digital information, privacy and security are, are slightly meaningless terms because they're so easily compromised. And in an environment where, you know, back to, to Julia's question, where everyone is networked, if you're networked digitally, um, the, the, the challenge is, is negotiating trust in that environment. So over the next decade, you know, what, 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 how do we trust things? How do we trust other people? Um, our, our notions of how we trust change because security and privacy um, have changed fundamentally. So much of what we do um, can be seen and found out by other people, whether it's seeing our back garden through Google Earth um, or whether it's because of a communication we sent and uh, an email we sent around the office still exists 10 years later and suddenly comes back to bite us. Um, because of the permanence of digital stuff. It's, it's a profound, differentiator. profound differentiator between organisations, whether public or private. And I think it, it, it could be, in some degree, the, 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 new, the new battleground. You know, do, does your email provider read your emails and place advertising next to it, depending on those emails, or not? Does your browser you know, protect the browsing and send that information back or not? Can you opt in and out? You know, really profound questions that I think companies you know, like Microsoft are going to lay out their wares and differentiate on. And yes, I'll take the point, but, but it doesn't mean you give up and, 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 and don't try and pres pres preserve Someone, Someone's written a book called Delete. I'm trying to think who it was. It's an academic in New York, I think. And it's, I, I got told to read it, but I haven't read it yet. I just wondered if anyone had read it yet. But it is about what you do with all this digital stuff. Justine, did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I think just... To, uh, really to echo what Alex said, but also to, to highlight the fact that I think we are generationally going through the idea of getting used to the fact that what we write on sites like Mumsnet is public. I remember a huge hoo-ha when the Daily Mail started taking chunks of Mumsnet and turning it into a column called This Week on Mumsnet. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and the Mumsnetters, well, they, they weren't so keen because suddenly they thought, oh, everything I, I write is suddenly in public. Forgetting the fact that Google searched Mumsnet every day and everything they wrote on Mumsnet was in public. And I think people have to um, get used to this idea. And most importantly, I think, you know, young people, teenagers, who, who grew up and make mistakes, it's an entirely different world for them. When we made mistakes, you know, got drunk and threw up in someone's back garden, six people knew, and now everyone knows, and they know forever. And I think they have to negotiate a very different world, and that's, that's a huge thing for us all to get our heads around. I'm Kenny Campbell from Metro Newspaper. I, I think actually my question's been partially answered, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. Anyone who's used a, a call center in, in, in Mumbai or wherever knows that being networked is in itself not necessarily a particularly good thing. Um, with your combined expertise, can I, can I turn the session on its head and ask you what you think the biggest dangers from having a networked nation are? Uh -huh. Okay, there was, uh, did you have a question? Yeah, it was actually, it was, 
Ben Kern here from Channel 4 News. It's, I would kind of veered off, off topic uh, of what I was going to say. But I just kind of wanted to point out that, I don't know if this is working. Um, I just wanted to point out that one of the reasons why 2012 actually makes sense is digital switchover happening. And every single home in Britain will have a digital set-top box. Increasingly, they will also have internet connections. And if you think about things like uh, the Xbox, um, when the Connect came out, I did a report about it, and I wanted to take my, my most technophobe grandparent and put her in front of the, t the Connect and see whether it changed her perception of computer games but also the internet. And the, the increase in confidence that she had in that compared to the traditional website browsing where she'll only do it if my granddad's there supervising was phenomenal. And I think that things like gesture-based technology and having it on the television as opposed to on the computer. And, and actually, to be honest, tablets do the same thing because you're just using your fingers um, to move things around. That will change it and that will increase uptake and people will be using the internet and be part of a network nation but probably not really realising they are. And you know, as soon as like DirectGov probably should be offering stuff through the Connect or, or through um, IPTV. I'm sure they will. Fascinating. I, I used to teach on... I, I created the Digital Day for the Nation in 2007. I taught on that day... Uh, unemployed men. And the first question they said was, why is it a QWERTY board? Why isn't it ABC? I, I, this is too much for me. Because they couldn't actually read and they were struggling in there looking at the... So of course it is finger and it will be voice or whatever it is. That's the next thing. I agree. Nico, you had a question. We'll come back to try and answer some of these. Just, so many people have got their hands up, which is good. Uh, Nico McDonald, I'm speaking on the digital innovation session later on. Uh, the author of that book, who has a difficult for us Brits uh, Eastern European name, uh, his thesis is that it's cheaper or less effort now to store data that you create than it is to delete it, which has not ever been the case. But I have to say his solutions are a bit technical, uh, and I think the problem is actually that we have a society where we give a damn about what people do in their private lives and judge their, in their public lives on that, which I think is a bigger problem. Um, I, just, I was just wanted to, I'm a bit uneasy about the whole theme of government driving us getting online. If you think about when people learned to read and when newspapers were published in the 19th century, government I mean, created an education act in the late 19th century, but the people who taught each other to read were often people like the Workers' Education Association and left-wing organizations because they had a, a mission, if you like. There was no race to get low-cost international travel. Um, in fact, we deeply disapprove of that often. It was EasyJet that delivered that. So why do we want to get people online? And if you think about electricity, did people watch, did people, I'm not asking you obviously, um, but there was a documentary in three parts on BBC Four about the creation of the national grid, which on the one hand was an infrastructure project which dwarfs anything you know, government has done around broadband. On the other hand, people took up el electronic consumer goods because they saw a clear value for them. And will people not do that when they see a clear value, when, as Ashley points out, they're more usable and useful and desirable than they are now. Do we really need government to be doing that? And what is the motivation for politicians in doing this? It's, in a way, it seems to me, and I'd like to know what the panel think when they're the most skeptical or even cynical about politicians, what is their motivation? And it seems to me they just want to connect with us in a way that they fail to connect politically or socially, and if they can do it via IP, they'll, it will fail, and it will undermine the value of the internet, but they will try and do that. When you're most cynical and it's not about cost-saving, what do you think government uh, is motivated by? Well, you've got about a minute each to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Would anyone like to have a go at any of the questions? And then, yeah. 
Um, I think I'd like to have a go at the question about the dangers of networking a nation. And I think it's one that um, I've seen over and over again, actually, in various uh, niche causes with charities, is that there is a danger that you only network the people who um, are most closely resembling each other. Um, and then what you do is you create um, real islands within a nation. And unless you can find a way for those islands to speak to each other, you start creating a reality which um, doesn't reflect anything broader. And I, I certainly think it's, um, I mean, for Talk About Autism, my, my dream for Talk About Autism is that it's actually not needed, that those people aren't actually needing to talk to each other because they can talk to everyone else. Um, it's not an aspiration that people should only talk to each other because no one else understands them. And I think that uh, we should be aspiring for that, those to be transitional points and to find a far more integrated way of drawing people in um, to talk to each other who maybe wouldn't normally talk to each other. I think there is a danger that I can see lots and lots of... And also I can see, you know, I can even see on Talkbasm, there's a sort of hardening and radicalisation. The more they spend time on that site, the more they spend time, that actually what there is a need is to connect people up. So talk about autism, maybe talking to Mumsnet and us finding a way for that to happen. Um, otherwise, I can see niches growing. I mean, it, well, just to address that specifically, I think Mumsnet has a very active um, special needs board. Um, yeah. And if I had a pound for the number of times, um, Mumsnet members have said, this has completely opened my eyes to, of, of, of parents who don't have children with special needs, to the difficulties of special needs because it passes across my screen. Now, they're not in the special needs forum, but they're... You know, they're in, they watch the active conversations. Uh, and um, people have changed the way they behave in terms of being near children who are disruptive and because their thought goes, oh, this could be a special... I now understand this a bit more. So I think I take your point. I think people need islands for that kind of detailed emotional support that perhaps they don't get from people who don't have a full understanding of their situation. But it's good if the islands are part of a bigger continent mm -hmm. so the word spreads. I agree with you. More questions? I think just, just a thought on, on um, I mean, one point made at the front around uh, networking, clearly there's a difference between um, networking of people and networking of machines, and, and, and a, an increasing impact the internet will have is um, simply the amount of devices that are connected to the internet. Um, so, you know, the internet may come into your home, it, you know, it may come into your home through a broadband connection, it may come in through a mobile device, or it may come in because your fridge or some other white good in your kitchen is suddenly internet enabled um, and, and that becomes part of whether that then constitutes a network nation, the fact that we're all linked into the, into the grid of information may, may not be quite what, what this whole debate is aspiring to. Um, I think around the point of, of networking being a good thing, I mean I think if you think of the, the, the extent to which um, people use the internet to network with one another, at an individual level there's been a very aggressive growth. Um, at an organisational, government and business level, they're definitely lagging. Um, and there are obvious reasons for that, but you could well argue from the point of view of some governments, particularly in the light of recent revelations in some businesses, the internet and the networking is actually not a good thing. And in the case of even some of the internet pioneers from Google's downwards and Facebook, some of them might prefer in future for a network to be a little bit more isolated because it might suit their business purposes rather than if everything remains open and then they're their, um, their, their markets become so competitive they, they struggle in it. So that there's some interesting challenges around 
uh, you know, thinking in terms of networking, whether good or bad. I and mean, I think generally for the individual, the um, unscientific um, um, answer is that it, it, it's probably better for the individual, but whether it's better for organisations and governments is a, is a moot point. <coughs> yeah, Nico was slightly cynical, I thought, about all politicians. I'd bound to say that. But, but Nico, what is the solution? What is the solution? Listen, we normally, in good years, we have a fair amount of money to spend. If I say to you that in the last 10 years the government has wasted £70 billion on IT contracts inside Whitehall, which is almost the debt that we've been asked to pay out over the next four years, but no, it's not worth anything. No one raises it. It's not hardly ever on television. Media doesn't take it. So what is it culturally that if you're going to free up, if this system is going to free up in this big society, what is it you'd want? So what is it access to the money? Is it, what, what, what do you want? What is it that I want? Well, what do you think is the best solution for our nation? Well, I think there's a danger of what's... Uh, sort of to paraphrase, the politician with a hammer always sees nails, and the hammer in this case is the internet, and the internet becomes the solution to everything, <coughs> and that's not a way to go around problem solving. I mean, there are many interesting problems and challenges in society, but they're not all to do with the lack of connectivity of the populace. They're to do with real political issues, and we've got to recognise which are technical and which are political issues. That's a start. Uh, and also, I mean, I'm quite sympathetic to the, you know, let's have less government re regulation in some areas. And a lot of IT projects seem to be about, you know, instantiating regulation. If you didn't have so much regulation, you wouldn't have so much IT. Uh, on the other hand, the way in which projects are designed is very unuser-centric. And we've sort of alluded to that in this discussion today. If things were developed on a more agile, to use a trendy term, I'm sure used in Microsoft a lot, uh, dynamic, you know, user-focused way, uh, with a clear objective and better leadership, I think we'd get cheaper, flexible, uh, you know, you know d delivered sooner projects. So I think those, those are three issues I would consider. We've certainly raised the, ant the <laughs> question here. There's a question there. There's oh, a question here. <laughs> Hooray. Hi. Um, Chris Yap, freelance. Um, the interesting thing is to turn around and say, what's the opportunity? I mean, we are a nation of designers. And we are net exporters in design in all sorts of things. And you can think of all sorts. And the interesting thing is about designing for inclusion. And I, I, I mean, the classic example we had was with the first generation of DAB radios, which meant that a blind person couldn't use one because they, you, you had to see it to be able to program it. So that moving from analog to digital actually excluded people. Um, I can't use a smartphone since I broke my wrist last year because I don't have the sensitivity of my fingers with a smartphone, and it's too small. I can use an iPad. Um, I've recently seen, been involved with a project um, which was looking at people with Parkinson's. They can't use touch-based screens with mobile sensors. So the trouble is we're designing these things, and the advice and guidance which enables somebody to say, well, actually, the Connect could be used for an elderly person who can't do it, we actually don't have that kind there to have information available to the designers to be able to design products, nor do we have the emphasis on actually designing for inclusion. So some of the technologies that are coming along are actually creating new forms of exclusion. Um, and that's true of colour schemes, um, which, get, which aren't uh, uh, suitable for, for dyslexics on a government site. You know, all sorts of things like that that I think are trivial relatively to, to handle but we just don't do it very well. Lucy, you want to come back on that quickly? I know there's yeah, two just... people who also want to speak behind you. 
Just very quickly in, in regard to your exchange with Nico, I mean, I think what people probably want from government is, um, is, is acknowledgement of that spend and how that spend could be differently spent. And I know a lot of the big contracts are coming up next year, but what knits all this together is the still Byzantine procurement processes yeah. that mean uh, quite often um, all the usual subjects, and um, you know, maybe some of them in the room, and I apologize, do get the chance to run these projects and what many of them aren't doing are adapting with the quite readily ava available design expertise that we do abundantly have and to design for inclusion and other things but the big enterprise uh, solutions aren't necessarily the right answers for the big society and that's just to kind of use yeah. some cliches to, to wrap it all up but there are some interim steps that need to be taken for Martha's initiatives and the infrastructure initiatives to add up to something that we can all use. Uh, pass it behind for a th three, three more rows. Man in exquisite suit. Hello. Um, my name is Robert Dawson Scott. I uh, run the website at Scottish Television. Um, and I'd like to talk about my wife's PhD thesis. Um, bear with me. She only delivered it this week, which is rather why well, it's in my mind. And it is, was about the policy process. And what she looked at was a government. Uh, a program in Scotland called Hungry for Success, which is all about delivering nutritional um, uh, midday meals to every child in Scotland. And her thesis was that it didn't work. It did work, actually, by and large, in that the meals were delivered, but they weren't necessarily eaten by the people who needed them most, which were at the bottom 10% of the population. And her thesis was that the reason why it didn't work was because the policymakers and the policy deliverers, by and large, didn't really understand the value systems of the group that most needed the assistance they were delivering. So my question to the panel, indeed to uh, this august body, is how much do we really understand about why people don't want to be online? Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of generalities about confidence and access, and blah, 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 but I wonder if uh, the obviously sophisticated audience here who you know, all know all about online and have uh, elaborate systems and all the rest of it, understand and have really asked the question about why people are not getting online and, and whether there are reasons which have not yet been in turned up. And not, not the least of which is that people just don't want to be. Never mind uh, things like accent. So that's my question. Good question. Let me hold that and have one more here. Just pass it down. Just to your right. Well done. Excellent. Um, thank you very much. Um, my name is David Bremer, I work in Parliament. I wanted to raise the issue of cyber-terrorism, which hasn't really been touched on. Um, over the last week or so, we've seen the effect on commerce that uh, cyber-terrorism cyber has had uh, following uh, the, um, Julian Assange. But um, two things. Firstly, are we protected, really? Uh, do we have the infrastructure there to protect us uh, for a cyber-terrorism attack? And can we recover from an Estonian-level attack on the country as a whole? Will people be scared to go online to put their credit card details online, and, uh, uh, and, and will this whole Race Online 2012 come apart if there is such a thing? Okay, two separate bits there. Anyone like to have a crack? Actually, you haven't spoken for at least 10 minutes. <laughs> what about the idea that people don't want to come online? You must have come um, across this in... Yeah, I, I, I think that, that any, any network, whether it's a television network or a telephone network or all the internet, is going to have uh, issues around security and I think that sometimes the knee-jerk reaction is then to uh, regulate the hell out of it and actually I think that the light touch regulation um, and self-regulation by the, the players is is actually the way to go that does mean that there will always be ways in there will always be issues with with the security of, of the infrastructure I don't think that that actually is the reason it's certainly not for research we've seen why people don't get connected uh, in a, 
when people get connected, there is, there is certainly fear about disclosing too much information. Um, but even those barriers, um, there is actually, it, it comes, I think, I can't remember now, about seventh or eighth in the reasons that people don't uh, do e-commerce, for instance. Um, the, the old added idea that, that credit card in, information was somehow insecure on the internet when you know that, that it can get just as easily ripped off on one of those uh, machines at a point of retail. Um, so I think that, that for me it doesn't mean you abrogate responsibilities, but as I said, I think that it's about a, a, a trusted relationship with the consumers where they know what information they're exchanging, what it's going to be used for, what protections companies are putting in place, and what the potential risk is. But I don't think that is overall a barrier to adoption. I think um, on the why aren't people online question, and probably Lee would actually be the right person to ask that, but as far as I understand it, there's, there's quite a lot of older people who aren't online, and I think they're, they're sort of reacting in the same way that people did, you know, 11 years ago when we started Bumstown, which is I don't see the point, it's not for me, it's all people poking each other on Facebook and writing on walls, and I think it's a question of marketing, really, and making the case. Yeah for what's in it for them, yeah. um, because when you make that case, I think it's pretty clear there is quite a lot in it for people, as long as it's usable and functional. Um, I have actually got the numbers on that. So there's a, I think in the last... Hold on, just wait for the microphone. So here you are. Uh, hi, my name's Lee. I'm the MD of Race Online. I work with Martha. Very privileged to do so, and a few of the team here as well. Um, uh, to answer that question specifically, um, we report the ONS figures, which say that there's 9 million people that have never used the internet, but actually the real meaningful data where you can drill down at demographic level is TGI data, which suggests that there's 11 million people that haven't used it in the last year. And of that group, uh, 7.9 million are plus 55. And to answer all, at the same time a question about uh, mortality as well with regards to this group, um, uh, uh, this is the biggest group, and they are plus 55, which uh, is the new 45, and the new 65 is new 75. So another 20 years of uh, having your life transformed by the power of technology, I think, is definitely a worthwhile cause. Um, but uh, the biggest reason why this group are not using the internet is because they, um, they just don't think it's for them. They don't understand the benefits yeah. of it. So there's a huge communications piece, which is what really hopefully grabbed uh, Microsoft's attention when they just recently launched their campaign, which is about taking the power of those people that are online, which picks up on another point. So leveraging the 80% of the UK that are using the internet every single day and allowing those people to share their experiences with the people that don't use it because for every person that isn't online, they know uh, nine out of ten people that are. So actually, you know, using the power of the networks, of the Mumsnet, of the MSN, all those brilliant online channels to actually create a nation of mini-Marthas, mini-digital champions to encourage people to use the internet is really going to be quite powerful. What, what does your research say is the lowest hanging cherries in terms of the things to that age yeah. group? would be the thing that would tip them over into seeing the value of it? Uh, well, there's two generic, uh, we believe, there's two mostly generic uh, reasons why people would get online, and that's saving money and also the keeping in touch. Uh, it's really important that people realise that on Christmas Day, I think there's going to be about 100,000 people that don't see anybody, and in a week there's about 3.1 million people that don't get any visitors. So loneliness is a big issue in this country and the internet can really help support them. And they're the most two generic uh, reasons why people can get online. But to be honest with you, um, 
and this is a bit of a tricky one, which is why face-to-face -face is so important with those people that are currently using the internet and using them as advocates. It's really about people's interests. So asking somebody, you know, not telling them about the free training ab available, but asking them what their interest is, whether that's something like EastEnders, whether it's uh, Coronation Street and the exclusive content that's been available online this week with the 50th year anniversary, lots of different reasons, and then asking them how you know, what their interests are and then showing them how they can develop those interests by using the internet, as well as the phenomenal savings you can make online, which we believe are really understated because that's about two years ago. So one of our digital champions stood up at an event for our top partners about two weeks ago and explained that she'd only just the previous night saved £130 a year on a house insurance, you know? So, you know, that's just in one transaction. And just to connect the loop yes. on that, if yeah. we, for instance, if Microsoft at our low-end netbooks, I'm just shooting yes. from the lip here, yeah. but, but created, when you went in to buy those, um, at the part of the startup, there was a save money gadget wizard provided by good people out here that would then take you through all the things you could do to save money yep. from, from your household domestic bills through. And the whole thing was co-marketed yep. as, as, you know, get this machine, it'll cost you 200 quid, but you save 400. Yep. Now, so it pays for itself. So it pays for itself, yep. yeah. Um, yep. And I think that that's that kind of, that's where public-private yeah. partnerships could really work in yeah. We really believe strongly, Martha shakes a stick at every bus that drives past her walking down Oxford Street talking about broadband and the price um, because actually the price of something being 6 99 per month means diddly squat when you don't understand what broadband is or what the benefits are. So actually there's a big opportunity for this country to attract an incremental market of about 20% rather than stop arguing about switching markets, but actually look at the 20% incremental market and start talking about the benefits. And maybe as an industry we can do something about uh, this group of people. I think, there's, uh, I think I'm right. There were 250,000 volunte volunteers for the Olympics, but we only need like 75,000. <coughs> so I asked Seb Coe, could he put those that were volunteering into actually training on IT to train other people? but I lost that debate. But what are you going to do with those people that want to do volunteering but, but are lost? And I've said to Mike McDonald's separately, for every job at McDonald's, um, 84 people apply. So I said, could we help you with the 83? So that, you know, in other words, how do we get those 83 into in what is, you know, a hard market for those who they hardly read and write? You know, Microsoft, do all, uh, McDonald's do all that once they're there. They're absolutely exceptional employees. But I just wondered whether there's been a discussion internally at LOCOG about those volunteers. But you can answer me later. But, but we can help you with that as well. You? We'd love to help you with that. Yeah, I'm yes. sure you would. But yeah. I'm sure in here people would like to know how to help more. Yeah. So wh where should they go, Lee? Just the raceonline.org, is it? Or? Uh, it's probably up here, isn't it? Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're online 2012. 2012. Make inquiries there. I mean, we're specifically about the 9 million people that don't use the internet, of which 4 million of those are the most soci socially and economically excluded. And there's a whole bunch of reasons and ways that organisations can help. Uh, you know, Microsoft's a great example of that. Justine's going to help promote to mums to encourage their parents to get online. So even if you're, you're a massive online platform, then you can really help us. And, you know, getting ready for the Olympics and using that brilliant army of volunteers to help encourage people to use the internet where, for the first time ever, I believe, the sports are going to be able to be shown 24-7, which means people will be missing out on amazing interests if they're not online. And that's one in five. Yeah. But and our, initiative, our initiative is get-online.org. Yes. Hyphen, 
someone hyphen online. But don't say this is going to end in 2.12. What will happen then to the whole system that Martha and you are doing? Uh, right. Are you only funded till 2012? Uh, yes, not even then. We're looking for funding to go to 2012 at the moment. But we, uh, we're... Uh, you we... know how much Obama gave the FCC, <laughs> don't you? You gave them $9 billion to do what you're doing on £30 million, pounds, is it? Not, oh, I wish. Yeah, yeah, ten times less that amount. If that. Uh, what we do is work with our, our brilliant partners, to be honest with you. So, you know, we, we act as a catalyst organisation. There's about, only about eight or nine of us, and we work with fabulous partners and using their channels and their expertise and their um, enthusiasm to be able to reach the end consumer. And that's what, you know, we're, we, we think we're good at and we'd like to continue to do so. As for what happens at the end of 2012, well, hopefully there's a whole new few mil more million people using the internet and hopefully by then we've created real legacies within organisations to be able to do this because once people understand that it is, a, is an incremental market, the market, I believe, will look after itself. There was a question about the WikiLeaks and, and the security. Anyone here want to just say something about that? Do you think I mean, that's changed think... the culture of the net the last three weeks uh, in terms of the hacking about people coming together anonymously and taking hacking and saying, look, we don't like what you stand for. We're going to take you down for three hours. Is that, I think or is it's, it just it's a, brought just to a life a, a danger that has been around for a while. If I tell you that Mumsnet was attacked by Anonymous two years ago, you know, if it, and that was Mumsnet. I mean, you know, we're not really the most threatening organisation. My, my, my website's been used, got attacked yeah. by them uh, about six months. Yeah, and the trouble <coughs> is you won't get big corporations talking about this because they don't want to put their head above the parapet. And it is a real danger, and I think government needs to get involved in a big way because um, these, um, these people are a big threat to um, both security and commerce. I mean, what do you think? I mean... Do you think they're a big threat? Well, you have so many attacks. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, Ashley probably can't, Ashley probably can't say how many You have so many attacks a day, don't you? You're, you're under threat on a daily basis, Microsoft. Me personally. <laughs> I feel under attack right now. It will be <laughs> someone, someone described um, uh, the, the WikiLeaks um, as, a, as an angry bug report on our democracy. And it, and it is a bit like a, the, the impact, although WikiLeaks has been around for a while, you, you get the slight feeling this may be, for good or, or ill, their swan song, but it, it is like an angry, angry outburst which will then sort of filter and disseminate. Um, and, and I think that, that you know, cyber warfare is increasingly a big thing, um, but it, it comes, you know, whether it's in, from institutions, which is clearly what we're finding out, or from individuals, it comes with a grievance. I think that most behaviour on the internet um, isn't driven by grievance. And you think of the other wiki, the Wikipedia, um, which is an enormous archive of information, and I won't go into the detail about wh whether that's um, information that we trust or don't, but, but uh, again, as someone else described, I forget who, you know, Wikipedia was built as if by a team of magic benevolent elves, who, you know, a, a whole collection of, 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 of people from around the world who fill who feel willing to give and, and contribute positively and manage it as a positive asset, um, which, which I think is, a, is a, at least a, a counter-retort to the idea that um, everything's a disaster waiting to happen, because I think most people on the internet are well-intentioned, and that's reflected in the sort of things that are built and, and built by the crowd. 
Well, so it is important to distinguish WikiLeaks from cyber terrorism. They are not one and the same thing. I mean, I, you can be very supportive of WikiLeaks, um, but and still think cyber terrorism is not a particularly pleasant or nice thing. So uh, let's distinguish the two. Listen, I think we've had a very good morning of a two-part day. Uh, thank you for your attention. Uh, please give a round of applause to the panel.